Well, I had occasion the, this week to go to the basics conference for pastors held at Alistair Begg's church in Cleveland. It's always a great time of evaluating and learning and growing and being with other pastors. Pastor Tim Keller, whose video series, The Reason for God, we watched last summer in our Strong Summer Nights, uh, was uh, one of the speakers there. He had some great insight. How to get God's Word interacting with our cultural hearts. Some of what I learned and still yet need to learn was about preaching to confront the cultural narratives of our hearts. One of my favorite questions is, does a fish know that it's wet? No, I don't, I don't think a fish knows that it's wet because that's where the fish lives. That, that's what it's surrounded by. The, the water influences everything he does but he doesn't even realize it. And so it is with us. We are surrounded by our culture. We're bombarded with messages from our society. We're constantly fed our culture's philosophy and ethics and beliefs. We don't even realize we're wet. We're so surrounded by it. It's so much part of where we live. It influences everything we do. And so often, much too often, we don't recognize it. As our American culture grows increasingly away from any kind of Christian ethic, what must be much more mindful of how our culture is influencing the way we think, what we believe, and then how to effectively communicate God's truth to our culture. It's critically important that the truth of God's Word that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit not only be taught in such a way as to change our behavior, but also to change our ethics, to change our philosophy, to change our thinking, our hearts. God doesn't just want us to be moral. God doesn't just want us to be good people that do the right thing. He wants our hearts. He wants to change the inside of us. He wants the very core of our being. He wants all of us from the inside out to reflect His ethics and His philosophy and His thinking. The Bible isn't a big book of do's and don'ts. It's much deeper, much fuller, much more real, much more intimate than that. It's a book that describes our identity. It answers the question, who am I? And why am I here? It's a book that describes the truth and it answers the question, what is truth? Is there truth? Can I have my own truth? It's a book that gives us freedom, answering questions like, what is freedom? What's the difference between freedom and choice? It's not the scope of this sermon to answer those questions today, but it is the scope of our scriptures to answer those questions and so much more. You know, our world says you have to be yourself. Your identity is who you choose to be. The world says you have to be true to yourself. Your truth is what you want it to be. You choose your own truth. Our world says you deserve to be free to choose anything you want. Your freedom is in your choice. These cultural narratives we're swimming in. Do we realize how it's affecting us? Our God has answers to the cultural narratives of our time. And it's becoming increasingly important that we not only know that, but that we also believe God's word about them. Some of today's sermon was part of what I learned from uh, Pastor Timothy Keller. 
and the start of hopefully some more purposeful preaching to our cultural hearts. Well, Roger Storms, pastor of First Christian Church in Chandler, Arizona, tells this story. One Sunday, a car had broken down in the alley behind our facilities, and the driver had jacked up the car and crawled underneath to work on the problem. Suddenly, we heard him scream for help. The jack had slipped, and the car had come down on top of him. Someone shouted, call 911, and a couple of people ran for the phone. Several of our men gathered around the large car and strained to lift it off the trapped man. Nurses from our congregation were rounded up and brought to the scene. Somehow the men were able to ease the car weight off the man and he was pulled free. Our nurses checked him over and he was scratched up and shaken up, but otherwise was okay. When this man was in peril, people did all they could do to help, risking themselves, inconveniencing themselves, whatever was necessary to save this man. They were ready to try. The pastor said, you see, we, we regularly come into situations in our lives that puts us in times of need. Health, crises, financial difficulties, relationship issues. The challenge for us today in our sermon is what's our greatest need? You know, it seems like that changes a lot, right? Whatever crisis we're in, now that's our greatest need. Whatever disaster or emergency has struck, that's our greatest need. Whatever health difficulty we are facing, that's our greatest need. Money and healing and rescue. Our greatest need is defined by our latest crisis. For the most part, that's how we live. That's how we think. In our biblical account today, a man is brought to Jesus in crisis. He's paralyzed. Everybody knows what Jesus is going to do. He's going to meet this guy's greatest need. But nobody was ready for what happened that day. So turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 2. And follow along as I read starting at verse 1. To this amazing account. Of our amazing Lord. It says that when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above and When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is it easier to say? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to that paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like that before. Father, we pray that at this time and this hour, we will glorify God. We will catch a glimpse of the reality of your Son, our Savior. We will come to more better understand that we have never seen anyone like him before. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Mark has masterfully written this story with drama and intrigue and surprise and because it was masterfully lived out by Jesus for all to see. I want to look at the story of the healing of the paralytic from the perspective of the three surprised groups of people. First, let's look at the seekers of the healing. Jesus is back in Capernaum. That's where his ministry headquarters were. Verse 1 says he was at home, which probably means he was at Peter's house. So the, the crowd had gathered. Many people followed Jesus. Many people came from all around to hear Jesus. Many people brought their sick for Jesus to heal. He was popular. He was known as a teacher who taught with authority. He was known as a healer of diseases. He was a friend of sinners. He was known as a person who loved them. He's not separated from them. He's not some religious elite you know, figure. No, he was this, with them right there. He was in their homes. He touched them. He walked in their towns. He talked to them. He cared for them. Treated them with such dignity and purpose. He was totally unlike anyone they had ever encountered. So many had gathered that day that the whole house was filled. And not only that, but every open window, every open door had people surrounded, straining to hear the teaching of the Word from the Master. The house was encircled with people, hanging on every word that Jesus had to say. Well, four friends wanted to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. He had performed, you know, hundreds of miracles, and they knew that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, that Jesus would heal him. You see, Jesus was not just a healer, but he was a compassionate healer. He wanted to heal people. He used his healing power to show his love. They knew Jesus would heal their friend, not just because Jesus had the power to heal, but because Jesus had the heart, the love, to be a healer. When they get to where Jesus is, they can't get in. It's not possible. It's not like there's a couple of people in the way. There's a whole crowd of people in the way. There's no way to get inside. So they come up with a plan. They head to the roof and remove the tiles and boards to let their friend down through the roof. So if you can imagine here, as Jesus is, is teaching, there's commotion, there's confusion, there's dirt starting to fall on people as the roof is being removed. Now maybe the, the crowd first thought, well, they're opening the roof so that the people up on the roof, that they could hear Jesus too. But this small hole kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the disruption, it kept getting louder and louder and it just getting messier and messier. Soon the hole is huge. Then, in a great surprise to the whole crowd, something starts coming down through the hole in the roof. There's this man on a mat, this sickly, paralyzed man, probably unkept, probably with a scared, shocked look on his face, and probably 
a whole lot full of hope. Probably a whole lot full of anticipation, a whole lot full of expectation, a heart that's ready to explode with faith, the sure faith that I'll soon be walking again. So as the four men are are looking down through the hole and the paralyzed man is on his mat, everyone turns their attention to Jesus. The scene's all set up, right? Everyone's ready for the miracle. The situation's clear. There's a paralyzed man laying in the middle of the room that's just been dropped through the ceiling, through the roof, through these extraordinary lengths to get him to Jesus. And Jesus is this well-known, miraculous healer. This is not hard to figure out, right? We, everyone, everyone knows exactly what's going to happen next. Jesus is supposed to heal him. Jesus is supposed to miraculously heal his body so that he can walk out the door of the house. Jesus is supposed to meet his greatest need, the paralyzed man lying on the floor in front of him. Jesus is supposed to fix his most immediate problem. Everyone knows what's going to happen next. Of course, Jesus surprises everyone when he says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. See, now the crowd's confused. The religious leaders are questioning. The four men and the paralyzed men are kind of, well, that's great. You know, the friends are kind of thinking, Jesus, can't you see? My friend here, he's paralyzed. The whole forgiveness thing is great, but we didn't go through all this work. We didn't carry him all this way. We didn't rip open the roof. We didn't go through all this and drop him down there so that you could forgive his sins. Perhaps you don't quite understand what's going on here. We want you to help this man's greatest need. We want you to fix his immediate problem. The paralyzed man's probably thinking some of Yeah, I came here to walk again. That's what I want. I have a more immediate problem than Jesus forgiving my sins. Does he? Does he? Think about this now. No, he doesn't. It's a paralyzed man in the middle of the floor. He has no greater need than Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Nothing is more important. Nothing is greater. That's part of what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Here's a reality check for us, right? Do you believe that your greatest need is to have a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? Do you believe that knowing God is more important than your immediate problem? Do you really believe that growing in your knowledge and following God is the most important need of your life? Do you believe that if that man was never healed, that he had already received the greatest gift of all to help his greatest need? Now, we've been in church for many, many years, and we know how to answer all those questions. We're smart people. We know the answer to those questions. See, the challenge for us isn't believing that the most important thing in our lives is having a growing relationship with God. The problem with us, the challenge for us, is actually living our lives like having a right relationship with God is the most important thing. See, what would change in your life? Think about this now, practical. What would change in your life if you had a growing relationship with God that was really the most important thing in your life? Think about work. What would change at work? Would you stop using colorful metaphors? Would you stop gossiping and complaining? 
would you stop, you know, making fun of your coworker and instead start praying for your coworker? Would you start serving your boss with a new attitude in hopes that you could lead your boss to the Savior? What at home? What would, what would change if, if Jesus was the most important thing? What about having a growing relationship with Him? What would change in your home? Would you engage your children differently? How would you love your wife? How would you love your husband? How would that change? How would you manage your finances completely differently? If your first priority, if the greatest need of your life was Jesus Christ, how would your personal life change? How would your church life change? You know, God was really, really, really important to us when we got saved. And God is really, really important to us when we die. But kind of in between there, right, there are lots of things that become more important. What an amazing truth that Jesus is teaching here. It's amazing. Every day of our lives, nothing is more important than having a growing relationship with Him. Nothing. That's a hard truth, folks. That's a hard truth. That's a hard truth for me. That's a hard truth for you. It's a hard truth for us. But it's a necessary message for each of us today. I think Jesus, forgiving this man, was a surprise for the readers, too. But for a totally different reason. Think about it. What's the core message of Jesus? What's the very heart of Jesus' teaching? If you still got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2, just look over in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is a summary of the core teaching of Jesus. Mark 1.15. Jesus' message is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, the universal message of the Bible from start to finish is that believe and repentance come before forgiveness. So did Jesus just break his own rules? Did Jesus just kind of willy-nilly forgive this guy? without him even asking for forgiveness? Did Jesus just give this guy, granted him forgiveness without any repentance? You know, you, your thoughts got to go, what's up with that? You know, I think we get the answer from verse 8. It says that Jesus knew the heart of the scribes. It says many times in uh, the Gospels that Jesus knew people's hearts. For example, in John 2:24, it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knows the heart of all people. Jesus knew in himself what was going on inside of the other people. Not guessing, he knows. Jesus knew the questioning hearts of the scribes and he knew the repentant heart of the paralyzed man. You see, if we really believe that the most important thing for this paralyzed man was to be in a right relationship with God, what Jesus did was the most gracious and loving thing that could ever be done. If we really believe the most important thing for this paralyzed man was to be in a right relationship with God, then Jesus did it. Jesus did the most gracious and loving thing that could be done. He focused on the man's truest and greatest need. Jesus looked beyond the surface. He looked at his heart and so wonderfully, truly saved this man. What good is it to walk if your heart 
is unconverted. What good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Jesus knew the paralyzed man's greatest need. Jesus knew his repentant heart. And Jesus gave him the greatest gift of all, forgiveness. You see, our Jesus is so precious. He's so gracious. There are no hoops to jump through. There's, there's no condemnation. There's such a willingness on Jesus' part to extend his grace, to show his love and, and his mercy. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows your sin. Jesus knows your stains. He knows. And what does he do? He's offering to you the greatest gift of all. You see, you can trust Jesus to meet the greatest need of your life. You know, he's not waiting around for you to to say it the right way. He's not waiting around for you to perform the right religious works. No, he's looking at your heart and he's offering you right now forgiveness for your sins. Right now, he is willing in his grace and mercy and his love to forgive you. We can trust Jesus to meet the greatest need of our life. A right and growing relationship with God. Well, next we see the surprise of the leaders of the people. These religious leaders are also surprised that Jesus said to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. But they're again surprised for a completely different reason. They're offended. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 there. It says, what does this, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. How can, who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, one of the ironic twists of the story, one of the things that makes this such a great story is that these religious leaders are absolutely correct. They are right on, 100% doctrinally correct. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. See, the problem is, and in verse 7, that's not their doctrine. The problem is the application of their doctrine. They would not accept that the one standing before them, Jesus, was God. Yet in this passage, make no mistake, Jesus is loudly claiming to be the Messiah, to be the Anointed One, to be the one and only Son of God. In verse 10, Jesus uses a divine messianic title of himself from Daniel chapter 7, claiming to be the Son of Man, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the one who goes to the Ancient of Days with authority, claiming to have the authority to forgive sins, claiming to be God. Not only does Jesus proclaim that he is divine and has authority to forgive sins, he then looks at these religious leaders and said, I'll prove it. I will prove it to you. Look at verse 9 and following, what Jesus says. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, this divine messianic title that they would have understand, to know that I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose picked up his bed, and he went home. 
And all the people are going, wow, this is amazing. And they glorify God. They say, we've never seen anything like that. You see, in our passage, it's, we're supposed to get the idea that it's much, obviously much easier to say to someone their sins are forgiven, right? It's easy to say to someone your sins are forgiven because there's no visual proof that anything's happened. That's an easy thing to say. It's much harder to say to someone, rise, take up your bed, and walk, because there's visual proof of that. It's, it, it says it, and it has to happen. It's a physical thing to happen in front of you. So Jesus does the harder thing, the visual thing, to prove that he did the seemingly easier thing, but you can't see the invisible thing, forgiveness. See, the healing is proof so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. The healing is proof that Jesus is who He says He is, the Son of Man, the divine Messiah. And it's proof then that He has the authority to forgive sin. So it is easier to say that your sins are forgiven. But let me say that it's much harder, much, much harder to actually do the forgiving of sins, right? For the forgiving of those sins would require the cross. would require his punishment and his death would require him bearing the cost and the burden of all of mankind's sin to be the perfect lamb as our sacrifice. Jesus is teaching so many things in this passage. One of those truths is, is that the divine Son of Man is God with authority to forgive sins. Now think about this little illustration with me. We got three guys here. We got Fred, we got Kevin, and we got Scott. So Fred walks in and punches Kevin on the nose. Right? Kevin's holding his bloody nose and Fred had just punched him in the nose. And then Scott now walks over to Fred and says to Fred, I forgive you for hitting Kevin in the nose. Now, Kevin's going to look at Scott and say, you can't forgive Fred. Only I can forgive Fred. Because Fred's the one who hit me on the nose. You get the point from that little story there? You can't forgive someone if they haven't hurt you. You can't forgive someone if they haven't sinned against you. I mean, we can only seek forgiveness from the one we've offended. Seeking forgiveness from a third party is totally unrelated to the issue is empty and, and fruitless and useless. So when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, that must mean that this man sinned against Jesus. For Jesus to forgive him, he had to have done something against Jesus. But this man had never met Jesus before. How could, how could he sin against him? You see, if you have the divine authority to forgive sins, if you're the very Son of God, that also means that all sin, everyone's sin, is ultimately an offense against you. David taught us this in Psalm 51. The great Psalm 51. You guys need to know about that psalm and go to it. It's his confession of a sin to Bathsheba. It starts off saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Did you catch that? Ultimately, David's sin of adultery and murder were against God, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Think about this for a moment now. Every lie, every theft, every murder, every cut down hurtful word, every sexual sin, every lust, every one of every sin for all of time by all people is ultimately a sin against God. Folks, your sin, my sin, every one of them is a sin against Jesus. It's like punching him in the nose. Every one of our sins is real and personal. Yes, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because Jesus bears the weight of our sins. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All have turned away, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What an important truth. All sin is against God and all sin will be justly judged. It should sober us up a little bit here. It should sober us up to to know that our sins are ultimately a punch in the heart to our Savior. Each one of us so stained by sin. But as sobering as that truth is, folks, the truth that Jesus willingly took our sins should bring us so much more praise. Jesus took those punches willingly. What a wonderful Savior. He's so awesome. Jesus is so kind and so loving. He's so strong as to bear our sin and yet so willing enough to do it. He's so holy to be offended by our sin, but yet so loving to take the penalty for my sin. Remember the great hymn? My sin, oh the bliss of this wonderful thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. The religious leaders were right. Only God can forgive sins, and he's so willing to do that. Remember these two quotes? The gospel says you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's our Jesus. We can truly say with that crowd, we have never seen anyone like this before. Well, there's a Scottish fairy tale. It's a Cinderella-like story, and it goes something like this. There's a girl that comes into a kingdom and is enslaved by a wicked uh, woman and her three daughters. She is their slave, doing all the work around the home. Her enslavement keeps her secluded, away from knowing what's going on in the outside world. The crown prince, the gallant prince, goes off to battle. And he kills someone that he didn't intend to. He feels guilty about it. He regrets killing this person. When he comes back, he notices that the royal tunic has blood on it. He tries to wash out the blood stain, but nothing will remove the stain. He can't get it off. He can't get the stain out. So he declares that throughout his kingdom, if 
any girl in the kingdom is able to get the stain out, that she is his true love and will become his bride and princess. So the prince hands over the tunic and one by one, all the girls of the kingdom start to try to get the blood out of the, the, the tunic. So one evening, the servant girl goes up to do the laundry. And there's the princess's blood-stained tunic. But she doesn't know anything about the prince or the tunic. She just notices that it needs to be cleaned. So she does the laundry, including this blood-stained tunic. And she cleans it. The blood stain comes out. She doesn't know anything about the declaration of the prince. She was just doing the laundry. So the next day, the evil mother of the house sees the clean tunic, realizes what has happened, and immediately grabs the tunic, grabs her eldest daughter, and runs to the prince saying, her daughter had got the stain out. Her daughter was his true love. It doesn't feel right right away to the prince. And soon he he realizes through the twists and turns that this woman's not his true love, that she didn't get the stain out, but that it was her servant that got the stain out. So he goes and rescues the servant girl, and they're married, and she becomes the princess, and they live happily ever after. Well, the point of the story is simple. Only your true love can get the stain out. Anyone who can get the stain out is your true love. No one gets the stain out by themselves. No matter what you do, through your best efforts, you can't get the stain out. Your therapist can't get the stain out. Your success, your job, your money can't get the stain out. Your education can't get the stain out. Other people, your pastor, your spouse, your children, they can't get the stain out. For each of us, there is a stain. In each of our lives, our sin is a stain that we can't get out. No amount of good works, no amount of self-help, no one else can do this. The stain of guilt, the stain of sin, we all know we have it. And we all know we can't get it out. We can't get rid of it. Only our true love can remove that stain. Only Jesus can remove that stain. Only Jesus, our true love, can remove the stain of sin in our lives. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. See, today is your day to take your scarlet-stained heart and offer it to the true love of your life, to Jesus, the only one who can take our sins, though they be as scarlet, and make them white as snow. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, I'm so overwhelmed by you this morning and this message. You are amazing. And your word is amazing to teach us such things. Lord, I just pray today for me, for us, that we'll learn them. You know, 
The most important thing is you. We so much want you to do all these other important things. But Lord, we come to you with the stain of our lives, of our hearts. We come to our true love. We come to you, Jesus. And we simply ask if you would show us that same kind of love and grace that you showed that paralyzed man on that day. And you would take our sins, though they be as scarlet, and make them white as snow. In Jesus' name.